From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out, so listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. I am so excited for today's episode because we are celebrating 10 thousand downloads. I could hardly believe it. It's amazing. I am so honored to have connected with you and walked with you as you support those in your church, because that is what we are all about. I love sharing lessons learned as a social worker and care coordinator at a local church and having guests on the show who share their resources and wisdom. The show is all about learning about being equipped with tools to care for others, but then we can't ignore caring for ourselves because if we neglect ourselves, then we're going to burn out and be no help to anyone. So today's episode, we are going to highlight two of the top guests on the podcast, as well as two of the top solo episodes over the last year. Now, looking back, it is no surprise to me to discover who were those top guest sessions. And they were episodes focused on trauma with Kobe Campbell and Sanghyun Yu. These guests speak from a seat of lived experience, as well as clinical expertise. Both have experienced trauma in their personal lives, which have fueled a passion to help others. But before I share some of the amazing wisdom learned from these two, let me briefly talk about what trauma is just to give a little bit of context because we're not going to be listening to the full episodes. Trauma is a lasting emotional response that often results from living through a distressing event. Experiencing trauma isn't only big life-altering moments of tragedy, but they can be really any experience that makes someone feel unsafe or vulnerable. And moving forward, these experiences harm a person's sense of safety, a self, and the ability to regulate emotions and navigate relationships. Essentially, trauma is any situation in which you feel unsafe, and it can have lasting impacts on how you see the world and how you view yourself. Now, I recognize this is a very, very simplistic view of trauma because there are whole courses and programs designated to learn about trauma. But I wanted to provide a simple explanation because I think it takes away some of the stigma of us versus them. With this simple definition that I didn't come up with myself, I pulled from the Canadian Center for Addiction and Mental Health, we can see that most of us have likely experienced some sort of trauma. Trauma isn't something that is only experienced by veterans, those who've been through natural disasters or abuse. We've all experienced some sort of trauma, some sort of experience that has made us feel unsafe and we're susceptible to the impact. But as we know, Trauma doesn't impact us the same way, and not all people react to the same trauma the same way. What I mean is, is that two people can be part of the same event, but one could experience some significant impacts like PTSD or some other impacts to their worldview, and the other person who experienced the exact same thing could have minimal disruption to their well-being. And this causes people real interest. And for clinicians, it has really drawn an interest to many, many people. And they dive into more courses and learning about causes and treatment. But for the everyday person, seeing people experience trauma differently can tend to cause people to measure or qualify the suffering. As helpers and caregivers, we kind of do this to ourselves sometimes, saying we shouldn't be exhausted because we didn't experience the severe hardships like those that were supported 
hurting or we minimize our impacts of trauma compared to those that we're supporting. Or maybe we do this to others. We judge someone's response to a situation based on how severe we determine the situation to be. Sometimes we find ourselves thinking like, why are they having that reaction? What happened to them wasn't that bad. That's just not how trauma works. Each person is different and each response is different. But in every response, as Christians, we are to respond as Jesus did to those who have experienced trauma. And Jesus's response just so happens to mirror what research has suggested being best practice. And Sang-Hoon explains this so well in episode 23. But trauma-informed care is a bottom-up approach. We go from differently and opposite way, actually. So. You belong here, it's okay not to be okay. I love you, whatever you did. And we can talk about what happened. John chapter eight, the woman in adultery caught by religious leaders came to the Jesus. And then what happened? Jesus kicked out all the religious leaders and asked the woman, where are they? And the woman said, oh, I don't know, they are gone. Jesus didn't talk about, oh woman, you made a sin, repent. Jesus made a safety first. You are safe here. And then Jesus will say, neither I condemn you. So regulate and relate that I don't condemn you. I relate to you and I accept you. Acceptance is now approval and then reason. And then Jesus says, sin no more. Perfect. The scientific trauma informed care exactly supporting what Jesus did in the woman in called in adultery. It's amazing how often what research determines to be best practice is actually a principle or practice that is found in the Bible and seen in Jesus's ministry. Sanghoon identifies that the church can offer care that follows these principles. The church can create safe places where people can heal while being careful not to re-traumatize by first creating a calm and safe place for people, building trust through relationships, and then supporting people with love, grace and truth. I think this is a desire for every pastor to create spaces for people to find Jesus and to have their heart wounds healed and then to walk with them as they discover their calling and grow in their faith. And that's what a trauma-informed church looks like. In episode 13, Kobe Campbell discusses how trauma-informed leadership can transform the church. She identifies that pastors are placed in a position of authority and power and are often looked to for advice and support. But regardless of their position, unresolved trauma can impact a leader's decision-making and ability to lead. And we see that in scripture. That's not the first time he's left out of the picture, right? So David has this childhood trauma of uh, abandonment and estrangement from people. So when David gets older, what does he struggle with? He struggles with intimacy. In childhood, the one thing that he lacked was intimacy. And so when he gets power and he gets authority, what's the one thing he can't say no to? Intimacy, to the point of murdering somebody, right? And that is how, that is like a small snippet. I didn't go on about this for years, but that is like a small snippet of how even in Christ, even in our fruitfulness, even in our ministry, even in our ability to slay, you know, the tens of thousands when other people are only slaying the thousands, our childhood trauma does not get resolved by time, does not get resolved by success, does not get resolved by the change of location. 
there was still a reality that David, in his heart, I believe that when he lets um, himself lead someone to their death, that was not a grown man doing that. That was a little kid saying, I'll never be lonely again. In his book, The Body Keeps Score, Bessel van der Kolk describes how trauma is not only an emotional experience, but it's also a physical one. Trauma changes how the mind and brain perceive the world around us. Dr. Carolyn Leaf describes neuroplasticity as the brain's ability to change and be rewired based on our experiences. And this is what Kobe describes in her retelling of the story of David and Bathsheba from the lens of a trauma counselor. As leaders, our experiences of trauma in our past can physically change our brains and how we think and see the world, therefore impacting our decisions and our leadership. But the science of neuroplasticity is telling us that if our brains can change because of traumatic experiences, then they can also be changed and be healed based on our experiences. So this does not mean that you are disqualified as a leader because of trauma, but it does mean that you need to do the hard work of looking introspectively and reflecting and dealing with your stuff. Yeah, that baggage, you know, that ones that you keep ignoring, the stuff that pops up when we're stressed or when we're lonely or when we're overwhelmed. Yeah, that's the stuff we need to deal with as leaders. God is so incredibly graceful. God still describes David as a man after his own heart. Yet again, another example of how we can support others. God is so good. God can have mercy for the things that lead us to sin, yet still hold us accountable for the sin. And we can model this in our leadership. See people first, not the problem first. I think our churches have to be better about embodying a part of Jesus that all of us are estranged from, which is his tenderness. Instead of saying, why did you do that? And we're going to set up a meeting and you need to get sat down saying what you just said, what happened? What led you there? Does that mean that someone's not going to face consequences? Absolutely not. But it's about encountering the person first because that's what, that's what God does. He encounters the person first, right? Like he heals, uh, you know, rather he shows mercy to the woman who, um, is being dragged before him because she's accused of being adulterous and he forgives her. Then he says, go and sin no more, right? Like he, he still, there's still a responsibility there. But I think sometimes we try to heap this responsibility on people without, without honoring their humanity, without honoring the fact that they're people, without honoring the fact that they're people with stories. Um, if we knew I truly believe this. If we got to hear the, the depth of brokenness that the people we are serving with and the people we serve are carrying every single day, we would have so much more mercy. We would be so much more gentle. And trauma-informed leadership is about getting people to a place where you don't have to know their story before you decide to be gentle. That they don't have to prove with disclosing to you that you're safe you know, that you are someone who is going to handle them with care. It's about teaching people how to handle people with As leaders, we are often consulted for advice and support. And, and if we approach the situation as being a fixer or, or problem solver, we tend to be focused on looking for a problem and blame 
is often placed on the person who's looking for support, the person that it's coming to you with the problem. Words of shame can be said over them. Things like you need to pray or you need to be in the word more or you must have doubt or sin in your life or you need to search yourself and surrender your whole self to God. But these words cause wounds more than healing. The questions come up with some people is how do we support someone who is making poor or maybe even sinful decisions or choices? And I think the story of David is a great example and that God offers mercy for the things that have led us to sin, but still holds us accountable for sin. We can do both as well. We can offer mercy for the trauma that has led people to sin, but we can remain compassionately engaged as they walk through those natural consequences. So Kobe's and Sang-hoon's episodes, these are the two top guest episodes on trauma. And along with these guest episodes, there are also two solo episodes all about practical support that I want to highlight because clearly based on your downloads, they were well liked. The first one being how to de-escalate a mental health crisis. And the second one is three pillars of the care ministry. Now in episode 24, how to de-escalate a mental health crisis, this is an episode that came from a question from the church mental health Facebook group. In this episode, I outlined the four steps of crisis de-escalation and what's happening in the brain as people experience stress. I've adopted the term flipping your lid from researcher Dan Siegel. And once you have learned this practical point or this, this visual, you get this visual, you'll begin to see it everywhere in the grocery store and kids, men, with your children, your spouse, your family. Believe me, you're going to start seeing people flipping their lid all around you. It's a simplified explanation that I just borrow from Dan Siegel to describe what happens in the brain when people experience stress. It's a simple way to learn about what happens when we feel emotionally and physically threatened. And I use this to describe those four steps of crisis de-escalation. If you hold up your fist with your thumb tucked under your fingers, it's a visualization of the brain. Now, this is kind of hard to demonstrate in a podcast, but in the show notes, I'll link to the YouTube video and vlog where I talk more about this. With your fist held up, the front of your fingers are the prefrontal cortex or the logic center of your brain, like the front part of your brain, right at your forehead. The back of your hand or wrist is the brain stem or the area that is in charge of all the automatic nervous system functionings like breathing and heart rate. Your thumb that's tucked right under your fist is called the amygdala. This is the part of the brain that senses danger and alerts the rest of the brain and triggers that fight, flight, freeze, and fawn response. Now, normally the front center is in charge. That's the logic center. It processes, analyzes, and assesses. This part of the brain is actually not fully developed until you're in your 20s. So if you are wondering why your teenager are making ridiculous decisions, well, there you have it. The front logic center of their brain is not fully formed anywhere between your 20 to 25 years old. Now, the job of the amygdala is to sense danger. And if it feels threatened, and it, then it takes over and you flip your lid. You open up your fist and exposing your thumb, the amygdala. You're no longer operating primarily out of your logic center, but with the amygdala and your fight, flight, and freeze and fawn mode are fully engaged. This happens to everyone. The person experiencing a crisis, you, your neighbor, your kids, your parents, everyone. 
Those who have flipped their lid are often responding with a lot of emotions and you're having a physical response. The amygdala, it's sending signals for your heart to pump hard and fast and to prepare your muscles for action and be alert watching for threats. This is 100% how our bodies were designed to work. If we were experiencing a real threat, like being chased or even being cut off on the highway, we would need to be alert, hyper aware, ready for action. Now, the interesting thing is that our brain cannot determine if what we're experiencing is a real or imagined threat. Now, if I'm being chased by a dog or if I'm imagining someone gossiping about me, both of those situations, we can feel threatened. One is real. A real dog is chasing me or and one can be potentially imagined. We see people talking and we assume or imagine that they are gossiping about you. Now, how your brain responds is the exact same. How our minds sense a threat and therefore the response of flipping our lid and our body's reaction is the exact same, no matter if it's real or imagined. As a supporter, you are likely going to see this everywhere when people are escalating and having a mental health crisis, like I was addressing in episode 23. Or perhaps when you're with your staff or volunteers and they are feeling overwhelmed and they begin to escalate. You will see this buildup of stress and then people can flip their lid. But when we can better understand the designs of our body, we can have more compassion and we can approach the situation with empathy rather than shame. Telling people to calm down has never, never helped. So we can approach the situation offering solutions and time so that our brains can re-engage and think more logically. As a social worker, I love practical tools and strategies that you can use in your very next conversation. So I try to offer these as much as I can on the podcast. And in my consulting work that I do with churches, uh, the work we do together is full of practical strategies, things like templates and pathways and examples and trainings and how to's. It's all in there. It's great to have information on what to do but it's hard to find information on how to do. So in episode 24, when we talk about how to deescalate a mental health crisis, it is full of practical how to do resources and strategies. One of the most listened to episodes is episode 18, Three Pillars of Care Ministry. So often, care ministries is an afterthought of the church, and I kind of get it where people are coming from. The church is focused on two primary areas, outreach or looking externally, and this Sunday morning experience or Sunday service. Music, guest services, kids ministry, youth, these absorb all the resources, the time, and energy for the church. But I believe the church is uniquely placed in our neighborhoods to be a hub of care. And this is exactly what I talk about in episode 18. Every time I speak with a church about building or strengthening their care ministry, we start with three core values, belonging, purpose, and hope. It doesn't matter if the care your church offers is done by senior leadership, deacons, volunteers, or if you have an established care ministry department. Regardless if the church I work with has a large, medium, or small congregation, each one says the same thing to me. We don't have enough resources to meet all the needs of our congregation. We don't have the funds, the volunteers, or the tools to meet the growing needs and the complex issues that our people are facing. This can feel really overwhelming. It's natural to want to meet the needs and solve the problems for the people that you love and serve. 
especially when people are coming to you expectantly and desperate for help. But let me take that pressure off of you right away. You can't be all things to all people. No organization can. It's impossible. So take a deep breath and know that there will be situations, circumstances that you cannot fix or you can't solve. But this doesn't mean that you can't provide support. You see, there's this natural tendency to feel that the only way we can help is to fix or solve the problem that people bring to us. We need to feed the hungry or find housing for the homeless, counsel the hurting. And while all these things are real needs, these are the only way that you can help. After working 15 years in the community mental health sector, supporting those who are homeless, struggling with addiction and mental illness, I have learned that despite all the complex layers of needs, the core needs that people have can be boiled down to three things, belonging, purpose, and hope. As a church, you might not be able to find housing for people or support people through the recovery process or offer trauma counseling, but you can most definitely offer people the core need of belonging, purpose, and hope. In my 15 years of counseling and case management work, every person, whether they were a CEO or struggling with homelessness and mental health, they had three core needs, and they were to have a safe community to belong to, to have purpose, see themselves as valuable human beings to their community to have hope for the future. These are the three core needs that we have. And while many community organizations can help support these core needs, the church is a unique, has the unique ability to infuse these core pillars into every aspect of its engagement with people. And when you're able to answer the question, how does your church offer belonging, purpose, and hope in every ministry program and touch point, then you begin to shift from having programs of care like meals, casserole, and prayer to having a culture of care where belonging and purpose and hope and care isn't infused in every aspect. Care isn't just the casseroles delivered after a death or a new baby. Care is the eye contact made with greeters. It's the follow-up conversation from last week with ushers. It's the encouragement offered from fellow volunteers working in Kidsmen. And it's the compassion and hope offered from the prayer team. It's the messages of hope and purpose from the stage. Care can be offered at every moment of your church's experience. Care happens at every intersection of church and ministry. In episode 18, I also offer a freebie downloadable guide that I will also add in this week's show notes. It's how to build a sustainable care ministry in three steps. And you can get that at hopemadestrong.org slash care ministry. Thank you, friend, for investing time and energy into caring for others and building your church's care ministry. I truly believe that communities can be transformed through care. Thank you to Kobe and Sanghoon and all of the guests so far uh, in the Care Ministry podcast. They have shared generously of their wisdom and their resources, and I'm excited in the future to introduce you to many more. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for sharing it with fellow listeners and friends. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, can you do me a quick favor? Would you mind writing a review? Because this helps people find the podcast more easily. I look forward to many more episodes at the Care Ministry Podcast. Thank you for connecting. Take care.